you're listening to the teaching podcast of Crossridge Women's Studies from our fall 2021 study of the Psalms. In the um, early days of March 2020, this thing happened. You might be familiar with it. <laughs> A little pandemic, you know. Um, some people thought it would last two weeks or whatever. Sometimes it's hard to go back and think about what life was like. Like even before, I always think it was March 13th. That's what's in my mind because our family had gone to Harrison Hot Springs. And all of a sudden we were getting all these emails like churches and gatherings, schools are shutting down. We are probably not coming back to work after all these things. And I remember watching on TV that first weekend and um, they had a reporter down at the White Rock Pier. And they were just saying how the they had put signs up on the White Rock Pier that said, please don't come. Like, don't gather, don't walk down here. You need to be social distancing and you need to stay, like a stay at home order, that sort of thing. And there were two young uh, teenagers. They were a brother and sister and they were out walking on the pier. So of course the reporter wanted to talk to them. And so they sort of said, hey, what do you think about this? Like it says you shouldn't gather and everything. And they looked right in the camera and just like very boldly um, announced they weren't afraid, their faith would keep them safe. And uh, they, they knew that God would protect them. So they, they had no worries about being out and about. And um, I don't know, somehow over the last couple of weeks as I was reading Psalm 91, I thought, I wonder if, if, if that's a lot of people's paraphrase of Psalm 91 could take you to that place. So we're going to kind of dig into that and look at that, maybe tackle that idea together tonight by digging into the context. Is that um, a good paraphrase of Psalm 91 or is it not? Uh, so let's just see where we're at. So the title of book four we said last week, these Psalms that we, we were just studying are in book four. And the title we gave was Maturation. And this was the idea that out of the suffering of exile comes this growth and maturity. And, and part of this maturity, I think what we see starting into this book four, especially in Psalm 90, is that God is Israel's two things. God is Israel's perpetual dwelling and perpetual dynasty. So he is their dwelling place and he's actually their king forever. And that was always Israel's desire and want and need. They always wanted this safe dwelling place with a king who would protect them from their enemies politically and provide for them. They wanted safety. And in the eyes of safety, safety was going to come from this home and a king. Okay, their own land, the promised land where they were safe, and then their own king who would rule them fairly and justly, and they could live in freedom. And so, like we said, maturity is seeing that this does not come from a piece of property or from a person. And that is part of the kind of the evolution, if I can use that word, of the Psalms, and especially book four, is the psalmist is trying to bring out this idea that safety for Israel does not come from 
this piece of property or from a, a certain human king. And Psalm 90 um, was started with Moses's words, Lord, you have been our refuge in every generation. And so from there, the rest of these Psalms speak of this, God as refuge, God as king. It's the twofold sort of themes or part of this book. So I hope that you saw that Psalm 91 and Psalm 92 sort of tackled those two themes, God as the dwelling place and, and God as the king. In our large group discussion time, we began by sharing all of the repetition we had seen through Psalm 91. First, we saw this central image of refuge and a lot of words that seemed to mean the same thing. Two things we took from this was this contrast of God's refuge as both soft and nurturing like feathers or wings and yet strong like a shield or a buckler. The other thing we noted was that this word refuge, when we look it up in the original language, means what you probably think it means, protection or safety from storm and trouble and difficulty. But there's a secondary meaning that says it's protection from falsehood. That seemed really interesting to us. Another uh, repetition that the women noticed was this idea of plague and pestilence. And we talked about how scholars say this could mean a physical plague or disease, which we've seen often in the Old Testament. Or some scholars think this means more something like spiritual forces or the presence of the demonic. Some women also saw this connection to punishment or the wrath of God through verse 8 which was also consistent in what we've seen in the rest of the Bible. We thought of Egypt and the plagues. We thought of Miriam contracting leprosy after she um, was disrespectful and went against Moses. We thought of David's sinful census at the end of, of 1 Samuel and the way that um, he asked God to protect him and the people and God's wrath was poured out um, in a pestilence and illness and disease and plague on the people because of David's sin. But we also looked forward to the New Testament where we saw that it was not always connected to, to punishment from God. We thought of John 9 where, where the disciples who had obviously grown up in this Jewish culture of understanding these blesses and curses according to the covenant had said to Jesus, who, who sinned that this man is born blind? Was it his, his parents or was it him, him who sinned? And Jesus said, oh, no, no, that's not necessarily the case. This man was born like this. This happened so that the glory of God could be seen. There are other reasons that we deal with plagues and disease and sickness that do not have to do with punishment. And it's really, really important, I think, to see that. But the ultimate interpretation is that God is a refuge that saves this psalmist from the punishment of the wicked. We saw this repetition of I will, they will, <laughs> you will. 
And uh, we all agreed that it sounded a lot like covenant language, language from Genesis 3, when God makes a promise to Adam and Eve, um, and also to the serpent. Sounds like Genesis 12, where God makes a promise to, to Abraham. Sounds a lot like Deuteronomy, where God sort of gives the, the fullness of the terms of his covenant with his people. It is covenant language, which means it is the language pattern of promise. And that fits with how book four began in Psalm 90 with Moses saying, remember the covenant. Though you have been in exile, the promise still holds. And this maturity that we talked about is the theme of book four. Perhaps maturity is the one that sees, sees that though the king is gone and our home and our city and our temple is gone, God himself is the perpetual dwelling place. The refuge that we get from the Lord does not need to be tied to land. He will keep his promise because he's the God of covenant. We also saw this repetition of the word enemies. And we noticed that the psalm was talking about both the psalmist's enemies and also the Lord's enemies. It said, my enemies, your enemies. And we noticed this long list at the end. It was kind of connected to all the wills. And the list was of what characterizes the one from verse one who finds refuge. And there were these three things. This person has their heart set on the Lord. Some translations say loves the Lord or is, it is attached in love to the Lord holds fast to God in love. Secondly, this person knows his name, knows what's true about God, who he is and what he's worth. And thirdly, this person calls out to God in trouble. God is who this person turns to. It is a picture of faith and trust, isn't it? Love, truth, and faith. And in all of it, we just saw that despite all this language of covenant, this idea is that it's not behavior that Jesus or God is looking for, but relationship, right? He's not saying that the one who finds refuge checks all the boxes. It's not a to-do list, but maybe we could say it's a to-be list. The one who finds refuge is the one who loves the Lord, who knows him and seeks to knows, know him and calls out to him in their trouble. Um, let's just, I'll just wrap up Psalm 91 by saying a few things about that and then uh, Heather's going to share. But I think that this portion this portion that is quoted by both Matthew and Luke in regards to the temptation of Jesus is the central sort of part that helps us to see that we can't just take this psalm and say, now I can jump in front of a bus and Jesus will keep me safe. I think it's really, really important. Um, I thought it was interesting that this psalmist who wrote this had no idea it was written for Jesus. I just thought about that for a while. Like he had no idea he's writing this psalm 
And then Jesus uses that to fight Satan in his moment of temptation. That's really powerful. So then I thought, okay, so it was written first for whoever the psalmist was. And actually the Septuagint, which is the Greek um, translation that was written for the Hebrew people in like BC, like the first to third century BC, it's called the Septuagint. So they wrote a Greek translation. They actually um, say that this psalm was written by David or for David. So, and our ours doesn't say that. So this was, this is something from the Septuagint. It could be, I, I don't have a problem with him writing it or Moses writing it, but so it was written for that psalmist whoever that was but then it was also written for Jesus and then ultimately it is for us as well but it kind of comes through those the those in that order right it was first written for a time for a people maybe for David uh, maybe for the king and then for Jesus and then for us so I, I thought it's really good to look at David and Jesus's usage and we already talked about this, but there's a sense in there that there's this punishment of the wicked. There's plague or disease or something happening. And he is having safety from it because of the covenant. Because he is safe from it, from this punishment that's happening uh, amongst the wicked because he is the people of God or amongst the people of God. And it reminded me a lot of the Passover. Like I was thinking about that, like this picture of in the midst of right? This, the last plague where the angel of death is flying over and the people of God had, had a refuge. And like, I, I thought, oh, that's almost like writing about the people during that, you know, you will just see like the, the punishment of the wicked. It's all, they're all falling dead around you, right? And yet you have this safe harbor. Um, and then thinking about it with Jesus, where this was used um, by Satan to tempt him towards arrogance, really. Um, I think that's a really important thing to, to think of. That, And if it was in that context, like seeing it as written for Jesus, that Jesus will be delivered through that temptation to sin by relying on himself, right? The sin of arrogance or pride. But if you keep reading outside of Satan's quote, it's sort of, sort of interesting that he takes those lines. Like he knows those lines. Does he know the next lines? Like, you will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the young lion and the serpent. Like, I find that super interesting how it reminds you of Genesis 3. Like Satan's quoting this. Jesus could have just kept quoting the psalm back to him and said, yeah, but I win, right? I have, I have refuge from your temptation. And then uh, in thinking it, I think still when you keep looking in that, it has this application for us. Because what I noticed in Luke is that he leaves out this little line to protect you in all your ways. So Satan says, for he will give his angels orders concerning you. They will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. And he leaves out this line to protect. It's actually to keep, keep, shamar, keep, important covenant word, to keep you in all your ways. Ways, important word for Psalms. Psalm 1, Derek, the way, the covenant way, right? So it's interesting, like he'll give his angels orders concerning you to protect you in all your ways, not all your ways, not any ways, not jump off a building from the top of the temple way, not jump in front of a bus, not do something reckless, but to keep you 
in his covenant way, right? And I think that brings us all the way back to this fact that, yeah, Jesus used these words to, or Satan used these words to tempt Jesus towards arrogance. And, and it's possible that he could use these words nowadays to tempt believers towards arrogance, right? Um, I like, I, I looked at Jesus' answer to Satan in Luke. I was like, yeah, what did Jesus say? And he said, do not test the Lord your God. So I thought about that for a while, that word testing, to prove or to put to proof. Um, and I was thinking about how that's that can be something we have to be aware of. And this idea of testing God versus trusting God. When are we trusting God that, yeah, he can actually totally keep me safe in the midst of this. I believe that. And when are we testing him and saying, like, I'm not worried about this silly virus because it says right there, it's not going to come near my tent. Right? Or my house, whatever. So what's the difference between testing and trusting? And I read a few um, good things where the commentator said, Derek Kidner said, testing is saying, God, work in my circumstance. And trusting is saying, God, work in me in the midst of this circumstance. It's a subtle difference, but it's actually a really big difference. He also says, testing makes demands of God, whereas trusting always makes a demand of me. And I think ultimately it's a difference between submitting to God's agenda and wanting God to submit to my agenda, which is, goes back to what Auntie Sharon was saying about our idea of refuge, our idea of safety. Um, yeah. Uh, Rebecca Brown said she thought, like, she just kept thinking, confidence, confidence is the central emotion, isn't it? Yeah, you can't really get away from that. I was thinking, like, trust, confidence, all of those things, that list of the one who takes refuge. It's like this picture. And in modern day writing, a lot of people are talking about Christians as a non-anxious presence in a very anxious world. And that is, is what it is. And it, it made me think about Philippians chapter 4, right? Uh, the Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. The Lord is near. Uh, and I, I just wanted to say this week, and this is maybe like challenging, a challenging thing to say, but if you would characterize your emotional state as fear and not rest, the psalmist might argue that you're not making the Lord your dwelling place, right? That you're not dwelling in the presence of God if you're saying like, I'm I'm just racked with fear instead of rest. And part of what it means, I think, to take refuge is to abide in truth. We said that. He knows my name, right? He knows what's true. You know what is true about God. Um, and the truth is, like we talked about that first night. Do you remember what we talked a little bit about refuge the very first time? And I said, there are two extremes. You might fear the disease of COVID, and you might fear the government taking away your freedom. And both of those fears, people who are struggling with those fears, can find refuge in the Most High Almighty God. Um, and like we said, it's not just maybe from storm or trouble, but from falsehood. What's the falsehood that we need protection from wherever you're at on this spectrum? 
Um, and the truth is, like, I was just thinking, what is the truth? Well, the truth is whether I live or die by disease, I know my true home. I know where I'm going. And whether I am a free, a free or whether I am an absolute slave in this country, controlled by my government, I actually know who my true king is. It's, that's difficult because we don't deal with that. There are hundreds of thousands of our brothers and sisters around the world who this is real life for them, right? Um, Charles Spurgeon said this again, with my Spurgeon quotes, it is impossible that any ill should happen to the man who is beloved of the Lord. The most crushing calamities can only shorten his journey and hasten him to his reward. Ill to him is no ill, but only good in a mysterious form. Losses enrich him. Sickness is his medicine. Reproach is his honor. Death is his gain. No evil in the strict sense of the word can happen to him for everything is overruled for good. That's the truth of the gospel. Do we believe it is the question. Um, the last thing I wanted to say before Heather talks, I loved this last um, chapter, no, paragraph, strophe, maybe you would call it, in Psalm 91, because it reminds me of being in grade four. I went to this Christian school and every single month we had a memory verse and it was like, like James chapter one and like all of Psalm 91 and like huge passages that we would have to memorize. And every morning we would start the day by, we'd all stand up at our desk. I, okay. I'm so old. I went to school in one room, one room schoolhouse. Uh, I started out and it was actually K to nine in one room. And then we got a little bit bigger. So we were seven to 12 in one room and we would all stand up just 13 of us we would stand up and every morning we would start and we would all say our memory verse together like this choral recitation that's how we started every day and there was this big guy in grade 11 when i was in grade seven and he was a very tall and big guy and he had an equally big personality and he was very dramatic and he was like always the lead in all of our school plays that we did every Christmas and his name was Ron and he had this big booming voice and I just remember he loved this I don't he this ver this um psalm when I hear it when I read it I hear his voice saying it and he would just really get going at the end and you know when you read with other people you kind of have to go to their cadence like you have whatever they're doing, you gotta like you're either with Ron or you are like on your own because he was such a presence in the room. And so every time I read it, I read the end, and it sounds something like this: When he calls out to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and give him honor. I will satisfy him with a long life and show him my salvation. <laughs> and every time we would always, and I think. It kind of got a little funny and maybe we were like kids, but we would just, and show him my salvation. We just enunciated every single, I cannot read it in my head without saying it like that. So I was thinking about that and sort of laughing a lot this week. And then I was looking at that, that word salvation. So what I was doing all week, I looked it up in the interlinear. You, you know what the Hebrew word for salvation is? Yeshua. Yeshua is the Hebrew word for salvation, right? Yeshua 
So the Hebrew name, uh, it's the Hebrew name of Jesus, right? It gets translated in the Greek um, to Jesus, and then we say it in English as Jesus. But it, it just, that brought me right back to what you were talking about, Lindsay, about, you know, this idea that it's about the punishment of the wicked. And like thinking back about this, this pattern of pestilence through the Old Testament, maybe, maybe from the Garden of Eden, right? That sin is like this pestilence. This is this heart disease that we all have. And I've been um, teaching in the, I was teaching in the preschool for a long time, and we were on this, um, this key point for a long time. Sin spreads, right? So after Adam and Eve, then it spreads to Cain and Abel, and then it continues to spread in the story. And I was thinking, we, we say a lot, sin separates, but this idea of sin spreading it just I was thinking about Psalm 91, this pestilence. And, you know, and I mean, to Jesus now, because of Jesus to us, like that pestilence, that sin, like we are, we have a refuge from it. We are saved from that. And we are saved from the punishment of the wicked um, because the, the Lord will show us his salvation in the person of Jesus Christ. I think it's beautiful. Psalm 92, a psalm, a song for the Sabbath day. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praise to your name, Most High, to declare your faithful love in the morning and your faithfulness at night, with a ten-stringed harp and the music of a lyre. For you have made me rejoice, Lord, by what you have done, I will shout for joy because of the works of your hands. Well, for me, it was the first three words of this psalm that kind of stopped me in my tracks. And I think it wasn't until about the second or third day of, of rereading Psalm 92, but I just couldn't get past this phrase, it is good. And I think probably it's because it reminded me somehow of Genesis 1. So I went back and I looked through the account of creation and I saw all the times that the writer um, said that God created everything on this day and then he saw that it was good. It's repeated throughout the days of creation until he finally um, creates mankind and womankind. And he says, it is very good. And then after those six days of creating all this goodness, he rests on the seventh day. And out of that comes the Sabbath. And I guess maybe that's why I went back to creation and and the beginning, the very first Sabbath day, because this psalm is for the Sabbath. I already had that in my head. And so I was thinking about what Sabbath was for. And in the Old Testament, we see that Sabbath was for remembering God's work. Here we have in verse 2, or, or verse 5, the work of God's hands, the work of his hands. And it was also from resting from our own work just as God did 
Lots of people talk about Sabbath in terms of this twofold purpose, to stop and delight. It's an invitation for us to stop our work and delight in the work of God himself. So I started digging into this phrase a little bit. It is good. And I was thinking about the word good and I did a bit of a word study and I've known over the past few years as I've been studying that that this word good is an important word in the Bible. It is the word tov and maybe it is good because of its roots right there at the beginning of Genesis in creation. Um, But we also see it later on in Galatians when Paul is talking about the fruit of the Holy Spirit and that the way, one of the ways that he manifests himself, the Spirit of God is actually goodness. So throughout the Bible, there's this understanding of the word good and goodness. But I was thinking that to us, good can feel sort of like an understatement. Do you think that's true? In, in our day and age, we often bypass good for great. In fact, I can tell you twice this week that as I was signing off just some emails that I needed to do and I would say, have a good day, I felt like, oh, I'm cheating that person. And I would go back and change it to great because wishing someone a good day almost seems like a, a half-hearted wish. No, I, I want them to have a great day, not a good day. But somehow I started wondering if my idea of good and goodness was actually not a biblical understanding of this important word tov in the Bible. So good by definition, as I started to dig into it and look into it, is rich. It's much richer than we actually give it credit for. And in the Bible, good involves two things, purpose and prospering. God made his world and then if it did what he um, called it to do and it prospered creation, it was good. So think about this. Let's say it again, this twofold purpose. Something does what it's created to do and then it furthers or prospers creation. Then it's good. That's what God saw as good. So for example, in Eden, the trees that that God made, they were good because they would bear fruit and they would produce seed. They did what they were supposed to do. They were a tree. They acted in all the ways trees did. And then out of that, creation was furthered. Another way, I guess, that Genesis says it is in the language of it was fruitful and multiplied. God's own command is actually to goodness. He says to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. Be good, in essence. So let's get back to Psalm 92, because what is it? that it says is good. We started, it is good. What is it? What is it that is for purpose and prospering? So we read that it's good to give thanks to the Lord. It's good 
to sing praise to your name, Most High. It is good to declare God's faithful love in the morning and his faithfulness at night. In a sense, humanity was made to do this. It will, in a sense, to prosper us. It's both our purpose and a source of prospering. I said that twice, but are you really thinking about it? Do you think that about worship, about gratitude? Actually, I'm I'm asking because do I think that about worship and gratitude, that it is both my purpose and a source of prospering for me? I wonder how does it change our gathering as the church, as Crossridge? What does it look like when people come to a Sunday morning gathering with this idea that we are singing these songs about God's faithful love and his faithfulness? We are singing songs of praise and thanksgiving because this is our purpose. Here we are. We are doing what we are made to do. And also we are going to go out from this place and the time that we have spent there worshiping, praising, thanking God is actually going to, in a sense, prosper us, to prosper our spirit. How does it change the way you put into practice rhythms of of regular gratitude to God? How are you teaching your children to see thanksgiving and gratitude, not just as a little quick exchange, but a a deep uh, fabric of, of your being? Let's keep reading. Psalm 92, let's pick up in verse 5. How magnificent are your works, Lord! How profound your thoughts. A stupid person does not know. A fool does not understand this. Though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they will be eternally destroyed. But you, Lord, are exalted forever. For indeed, Lord, your enemies, indeed your enemies will perish. All evildoers will be scattered. You have lifted up my horn like that of a wild ox. I have been anointed with the finest oil. My eyes look at my enemies when evildoers rise against me. My ears hear them. The Most High God, he's the one that we read in verse 1 that we are to give thanks to, to praise and to declare his love and faithfulness. What we see here is that that most high, the Lord, is the exalted king. There's all this language in here that is king language. Verse 8, but you, Lord, are exalted forever. Verse 10, you have lifted up my horns, the symbol of of the king of strength and power, often in the Psalms and actually 
with Hannah back in in 1 Samuel, this picture, this symbol of the horn is a symbol for the anointed king, almost like the Messiah that will come to save. That word anointed there is in verse 10 too with the finest oil, this practice of setting apart, consecrating Israel's king, anointing with oil like Samuel did with Saul and with David. Yahweh, the Lord, is the exalted king. He is exalted forever. This little phrase, the Lord reigns, in Hebrew it's Yahweh Malach. In book four, it is just full of that phrase. It is everywhere. In fact, just look right down right now in your Bible to the first words of Psalm 93, the Lord reigns. It's um, particularly saturates the next uh, six or so Psalms, Psalm 93 to, I don't know, some, maybe Psalm 98 or some Psalm 99. The Lord reigns. And you know, it's interesting because we ended book three in Psalm 89. And remember how we went back and we read that little verse that said like David's crown has been cast in the dust. Like what has happened to the dynasty of David? And yet what do we see here in in Psalm 92? That in spite of the downfall of David's crown, in spite of the fact that his, his, his kingdom is demolished, there is no king. They're wondering where the king is. Well, the the king is reigning because the king is God. He himself, the Lord, is the permanent dynasty that Israel has always hoped for. In the same way, he's the, the perpetual dwelling place of Israel. Like we learned in Psalm 92, he is the perpetual dynasty. He is the promised land. And he is the king of Israel. He's reigning over all enemies too. Did you see in there how it's, he's reigning over his enemies. It says, for indeed, Lord, your enemies. And he's also reigning over in verse 11, my eyes look at my enemies, the enemies of the writer. He reigns over all enemies. And this is part of what, uh, what the psalmist wants us to see, this merging of these two dynasties, these two kingdoms, the Davidic kingdom and God himself's kingdom, the Lord's kingdom. They have to somehow come together in the Messiah. And it's almost a moot point for me to say that because you see it so clearly in Jesus, but the people then, they couldn't see it. They were looking through this glass and and it was sort of foggy and cloudy. But in Jesus, we see these two dynasties come together, don't we? We see Jesus, son of David, and the son of God. Okay, we have to finish up Psalm Psalm 92. Let's pick it up again. Verse 12. The righteous thrive like a palm tree and grow like a cedar tree in Lebanon, planted in the house of the Lord. They thrive in the courts of our God. They will still bear fruit in old age, healthy and green, to declare, the Lord is just. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Do you see that this worship, that this heart of Sabbath ends in flourishing? Human flourishing. This same picture that we saw 
in the beginning of Psalm, Psalm 1, this healthy tree that is bearing fruit in season, whose leaves does not wither. We have it in mind again as we read about the righteous thriving like a palm tree, growing like the cedar tree in Lebanon, planted in this place that we're familiar with. We've been thinking about it through Psalm 84, the the house of the Lord, the courts of our God, the place where God is present. When you are planted there, you will flourish like this tree. And I thought it was interesting in this psalm that there's two kinds of flourishing. The evildoers are flourishing, actually. And the righteous are flourishing. So what are we to mean by that? (laughs) If you look closely, you see that the evildoers flourishing is temporary, isn't it? In fact, the word it uses in the original Greek is different than the word flourishing um, in, down in the, the end of the chapter. The two flourishing words are different in Hebrew. Not all translations reflect that. But when it's talking about the wicked or the evildoers flourishing, it shows it's temporary because that word actually means like blossom or sparkle. You know, looks really shiny for a time. <laughs> but... In time, all things start to tarnish. Just speaks to um, the temporary nature of that kind of flourishing. In contrast to the flourishing of the righteous, which means bloom and blossom and actually send out shoots to continue to prosper and further creation, right? Verse 14, they will still bear fruit in old age healthy and green that is not temporary I think what I saw by the end of Psalm 92 is that we had ended right back to where we began because this this tree that is planted in the house of the Lord this thriving and flourishing tree that is bearing fruit in old age healthy and green there's a purpose for it isn't it it starts at verse 15 two declare so it's not just doing what it's supposed to do it's not just flourishing in a way that is not simply temporary or shiny and passing away but it is going to um, press into purpose and to further creation by what declaring the Lord is just he is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him this tree is good (laughs) This tree is tov. The righteous is good because they are bearing fruit. They are healthy and living. They are what they are supposed to be doing, but then they are furthering the creation by declaring all those things that we were told in the very beginning of the psalm that we are to do. God is good, that he is just, that he is righteous, that his faithful love is completely upright and unchanging. Friend, I hope that you um, love Psalm 92 as much as I do. And maybe the next um, Sunday morning that rolls around, you'll pick it back up again and, and just start by remembering 
this beautiful institution, this beautiful practice that we have to to celebrate the Sabbath, to gather together, to give thanks to the Lord, to praise his name, to declare his faithful love and his faithfulness. And let us be people that remember that this is not just something we we do. It's not just a, a social club, but that it is a source of prospering for us and for others, for all of creation. Could we think that when we gather together at Crossridge Church, even this coming Sunday, could we press into this idea that we are there in order to be his church and to prosper? his church, to see it living and healthy and green and flourishing to the glory of God. Friends, I am praying for you and I really look forward to worshiping God with you this Sunday. Um, It is good for us to do that. So with that, we will see you soon. And uh, have a good, a truly good day. So let's just take a couple minutes before we spend time praying just to know where we're going. So we're, we're at the end here. We're jumping into book five, the final book. Uh, next time when we meet is actually our last time to meet. So we will wrap up uh, our learning in book five, but we'll also, um, because we won't be looking forward at all, we'll also wrap up like, you know, finally the entire collection. So I hope that you can sort of bring to that time, maybe remembrance of what you learned way back in the beginning of book one. Um, But book five is the largest of the books in the whole Psalter. It's 44 Psalms. And the theme, according to O. Palmer Roberts, um, and the way that we have sort of been structuring our study, uh, the theme, according to him, is consummation, consummation of the kingdom in particular. So we've been saying from the beginning that there's actually more psalms that have a lament feel, or would be categorized as lament, than there are praise psalms. Um, but it definitely bends towards praise. And this is where it bends towards praise is in these final Psalms in book five. Um, So I was just going to go through the structure with you very quickly and just let you know what's here. So um, hopefully this will help you just as you're studying the two that, that we are sit in for the next two weeks. But um, at the end of Psalm 106, I, I told you this, or I read this last time. There's, it ends with these verses, save us, Lord, our God, and gather us from the nations. Remember, they're in exile so that we may give thanks to your holy name and rejoice in your praise. So that's Psalm 106, the end of book four. And then the first words um, of book five, which is Psalm 107. Uh It says this, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord proclaim that he has redeemed them from the power of the foe and has gathered them from the lands, from the east and the west, from the north and the south. So God has done it. He's heard their cry and he has gathered his people. 
So that's how it starts in Psalm 107. And then you get to 108, and 108 is part of a what they call a Davidic triad. We see David again. It's three Psalms by King David. And basically the theme of those three Davidic Psalms are praise him. He's going to send the king. He's going to do it. The messianic kingdom is still a thing. And uh, he will save us through his king. Basically, Hosanna, this idea, save now, is, the, is sort of the theme. Psalm 111 to 117 is a group of psalms they call the first Hallel, H-A-L-L-E-L, because, well, if you look at them, you'll know why. They all use the word hallelujah a lot, <laughs> right? They're the Hallel psalms which again is calling, we'll talk about this in a minute, but it's calling the people to praise God. 111 to 117. Then 118 and 119 are this familiar pairing we've seen two other times. It's a king psalm and a law psalm. You probably could have guessed that. Psalm 119, very famous psalm we know it's about how beautiful the law is so psalm 118 is about the victory of the king and psalm 119 about the law now we've seen this before we saw it in 1819 and one and two so this is the third pairing of those two kinds of psalms that sort of stand as the pillar of the whole psalms that god's going to bring flourishing to his people through the king and through the law Psalm 119 is also an acrostic poem, one of nine. I haven't even talked to you about that. There are nine psalms that are acrostic poems, and they're actually really important. And there's this fantastic structuring in the psalms that I think it's every time, I'll have to look this up and then get back to you. I think every time there's an acrostic poem, it's in relation to, like either on either side of it, it's always a creation psalm. So there's like this praising the God of creation, and then there's acrostic poem because the acrostic poems show order, which is what God showed in creation. So um, Psalm 120 to 134 are a, a collection that you've maybe studied before, or you know about called uh, the Psalms of Ascent or the Songs of Ascent. They were Psalms. Traditionally, they were sung or written for um, and during the journeys of, uh, during the feasts, like of God's people into Jerusalem to celebrate the feasts. So there is a really interesting thing as you read the Psalms of Ascent, they're, they're very much like Psalms that go up. So you can see them as this, um, this drawing up of the focus to the Lord who is reigning in Zion. There's even like this, the number of the Psalms of Ascent corresponds to the number of steps that there were going up into the temple. And so it's just a, a real uh, poetic picture, I guess, symbolic way to just like drawing the reader up or the worshipers eyes up towards God reigning in Zion, in Jerusalem, that he is the king. The Psalms of Ascent are 120 to 134. And they always say that. It says a Psalm of Ascent. Psalm 120, a Psalm of Ascent. Psalm 121 is a very popular one. I lift my eyes up to the mountains. We preached on that this summer. Last summer. Last Christmas. January. 
I don't know, COVID, you know, <laughs> who knows when that was, but it was, but it was. Um, Psalm 135 to 137 are historical recollections. So they sort of look back and of course they're going to declare that God has been faithful and that God is the king throughout Throughout all of them, they sort of look back on Israel's history and God's faithfulness. 135 to 137. Then 138 to 145 are the final Davidic collection of the Psalms. And once again, it is a call to just looking at God's faithfulness to his king. And him being established as a king over Israel. Sort of we talked about before this merging of David's kingdom, the Davidic kingdom and the divine kingdom that somehow the Messiah existed as this interesting merger and the people back then didn't get it. Like how's David's king, David is king, but also the Lord is king. What does that mean for us? We're like uh, Jesus, right? Son of David, son of God. It's easier for us to see. Psalm 146 to 150 are the final Hallel. Okay. Um, and if you turn to them in your Bible, once again, you'll see why. I should have written down, you count it. You count how many times the word Hallelujah is used um, in those Psalms. And... Yeah, sometimes my husband always talks to our kids and, and people when he teaches, he always talks about this. Like we say hallelujah in this interesting way. I don't know, we use it. But but hallelujah in the Hebrew was a call to worship. It's saying praise Jesus. So lots of times we say hallelujah and other people say, oh yeah, hallelujah. And actually that's totally not like doing what the word says. The word says hallelujah, it says praise Jesus. And you say he has been so faithful, right? He has saved us. So when someone says hallelujah, you're supposed to actually do it and say, God is a great king and he reigns over all. And so that is what it's calling um, the people to do. The book and the entire collection of the Psalms ends with that word. It's the last word. Here's what he's done. You've seen the ark through the entire book. What are you going to do about it? Who writes the Psalms? Actually, David's back. He writes 15 in book five. Solomon writes one in 127. And then 28 of them are no title. So it's interesting because it's definitely, you get the feeling that the kings are writing, right? It's, it's about the kings. The two places we're going to stop are 118. It's called Thanksgiving for Victory. And it's uh, the King Psalm. It's Messianic Psalm. And then the other one we're going to stop is 144, which is actually also about the king. Uh, it's called A King's Prayer. And it's uh, a Psalm of David. And when I read it, I was like, oh, I don't, once again, every time I'm like, why did I pick this? And I read it and like, oh, the parallels to so much it was like taking me back to this and this and this it's just like the parallels to all other places in the scripture I thought was just beautiful and then when it ends I hope you're like oh yeah I see why you picked this 
it ends where we started. So hopefully you'll see that. Uh, just the next two weeks as you study these two Psalms, I hope that you'll be asking this question. What does it look like to praise Yahweh, to hallelujah, to praise Yah, praise God, praise Jesus, praise the Lord with your life? What does that look like? Um, and hopefully we can talk about that next time as we sum up. Wherever you're at, thanks for studying along. It's our continued prayer that as you seek refuge in the sanctuary that is the Psalms, you're formed in real faith, that you grow to delight in both God's law and his king, and that you know and experience firsthand the freedom and abundance found in covenant relationship with the Lord Jesus. If you want to connect with us, you can find us online at crossridge.church forward slash wstudy. Or you can email us at carolyn at crossridge.church. Grace and peace to you, and we will see you soon.